chapter 23, verses 26 through 43. And as they led him away, they seized him. One Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to him, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they shall say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, for he is, if he truly is, the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up, and offered him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving and due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when I come into your kingdom, when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. We're going to be looking at a few other gospel accounts here. Um, as we move through this. But there was this guy I read about recently. His name was uh, Petrus Gonsalves. Forgive me if I butcher some French words here. He was a nobleman in France in the 1700s. And while you may not recognize his name, as nor did I, I'm sure you know his story very well. When he was 10 years of age, his parents uh, thought he was possessed by a demon because of his unusual hair growth. He suffered from what we now call hypertrichosis or werewolf condition that causes hair to grow from head to toe. And his parents actually sold him to some French pirates who in turn sold him to Henry II, King of France. After Henry died, his wife started taking care of Petrus, making him a nobleman and even initiating a wedding with a young woman named Catherine. His life was spent in constant anger and resentment oftentimes raging at anyone looking at him funny. His personality changed. After courting Catherine, his, fist of, his fits of rage and his anger became a thing of the past. Catherine did not care about his condition, 
and the two of them had a very strong marriage and lived, as they say, happily ever after. Then comes the day a well-known French author named Gabrielle Suzanne Barbeau Villeneuve published a story about Petrus and Catherine in 1740 entitled Belle la Bête, or Belle and the Beast. The story we now know as Beauty and the Beast. It has enchanted millions of people, young and old, for hundreds of years, but perhaps very few fairy tales represent the gospel as good as this. A handsome and blessed prince turned angry and beastly because of the curses of his sins. The way to break the curse? A beauty had to show him love despite who he was. And this symbolism is such an important part of the Bible and Scripture. From the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 15 to the fig tree in the Gospels to the Last Supper is no different. The thing about these symbols in the Bible is they're so easy to overlook, but they're there, placed by God himself, to help us remember certain events that are important, that sticks out in our mind. According to the covenant, all we really needed was a blood sacrifice. All we needed is Jesus' blood spilt on the altar, and that's it. Could have been quick and much less painful. But have you ever looked deeper into the events of the crucifixion? Have you, have you ever asked why? Why the torture? Why the beatings? Why the thorns? Why the spit? Wouldn't you have written it differently? From the Last Supper to the Resurrection, we find, we find these these. these, these Tones of prophecy being fulfilled and symbolism. Now we know that the bread is symbolic of Jesus' body, but take a closer look at the event and read it word for word. Matthew 26 tells us that Jesus himself broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. So we know the bread represents Jesus, and Jesus himself intentionally broke his body for us so that we may be full. This is way more than just the passing of some bread around. Even the bread itself was unleavened, as this was the time of Passover, in which Jews celebrated the escape from Egypt. You remember the story that God condemned them in the book of, commanded them in the book of Numbers to eat unleavened bread, to symbolize the hasty retreat from Egypt? So the body of Christ was broken, sour and flat, the taste of death. A clear, a clear picture of salvation from a life of slavery. Do you see it now? It's not a coincidence. God himself ordained this down to the smallest detail. Even the room itself was prepared beforehand. What does this hearken to? Perhaps John 14 uh, chapter 14, verse 2, In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it was not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. 
a place at the table with Jesus himself, just like the disciples gathered around for the feast. Doesn't this beauty hit you in the soul? This didn't just happen. These weren't just some events. They were planned. They were ordained for you. In Mark chapter 14, verses 23 through 24, and he took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. He doesn't even call it wine. The description Mark uses is the cup. And we don't talk like that at the dinner table, do you? Will you please pass the cup? No. Does he pass the wine? This is intentional because it's written so that there's no confusion that this represented the life-saving blood of Jesus. Even Jesus' words, this is my blood, and then he drops the bomb. We read right over it. It is the blood of the new covenant. The old covenant of sacrificing animals and going to the temple and, and having a priest involved was old. The new covenant was about to be shed for many. Key word here, not all, but many. So the next time that Christ refers to a cup is in the garden while he is praying, and he asks three times to take this cup from him. Now the cup throughout all of Scripture, it represented a measuring of either God's wrath or God's blessing. And it's never described as half full or empty or even full. It's always described as overflowing. You see it in Psalms 23, my cups overflows. We receive that overflowing cup of blessing because Jesus drank from the overflowing cup of God's wrath to seal the new covenant with his blood. The new covenant is what our faith hinges on. And like the old covenant between God and Abraham, it is dependent on God, not man. Man's plight remains the same. He's still imperfect and wicked, but now we have the new covenant. It's not us taking the lamb to be sacrificed. It's God bringing the lamb to be sacrificed. And that's what this meal is about. It's the last meal before his execution. And the symbolism, as we keep reading in Luke, flow through the next three days like a river over stones. These strong, well-rested soldiers encircled an exhausted, tired carpenter and beat him. Just as God ordained in Deuteronomy 25.3, the punishment of no more than 40 lashes for this specific law being broken. The weapon of choice was a whip. Long leather straps with woven glass and rocks and nails tied in them. The scourging was ordered, the execution was ordered, but the spit? The spit doesn't hurt. It's not made to inflict pain, but it's the act of placing someone below and someone above. 
It's the degradation of it, not meant to inflict pain, but meant to degrade and bring someone down to the class of an animal. The king of kings, the savior of the world, not on a throne, but dirty, tired, and bloody, and he looks up with his beard torn out and spit dripping from his cheeks at the face of the one who was made in his image. The spit symbolizes pride in the ancient world. When someone spit on someone, it was a nonverbal and clear sign of complete and utter rejection. Recall Jesus himself spitting and then healing the blind man. Three times Jesus used saliva specifically with the blind to show that he was above ailments and rejecting what being blind meant. Because once you were blind and now you see. Let the scales fall from your eyes that the blind may see the glory of God. He is the only one that can make the blind see. We were blind, and he causes us to see. When has your pride spit in your Savior's face? The thorns, deep throughout Scripture, symbolize the consequence of sin being stuck in something and not able to get out. It was Adam's curse after leaving the garden. The crown, meant to mock Jesus, and there on his head set thorns, piercing his scalp and sending blood dripping from the consequences of sin. The wages of sin is death. And so it was that Jesus, never knowing the result of one single sin, suddenly felt the weight of all his followers' sin resting heavy on his head. Every sin will be punished. And they were punished that day. Your sins and mine. John chapter 19, verse 13. Jesus sits down on the judgment seat of our judgment for the consequences of our sin. Before Pilate, and this never-ending ring of thorns symbolizes the wages of sin placed on a sinless head. What never-ending ring of addiction in your life keeps you trapped in thorns? John chapter 19, verses 19 through 22. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. And so the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Pilate answered, I have written what I have written. The sign, the name tag, the label. Pilate, trying to mock, but in doing so presented the gospel for the first time. 
Jesus' sign, written high for all to see, was meant to mock. But what did it really do? It proclaimed the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, King of the Jews, it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. The glory of God here is that every nationality present knew who Jesus was. The utmost glory of this sign is not to be overlooked. For it is by this sign that we know who the king really is. The Hebrew language is the language of religion. The Latin language was the language of Romans. And the Greek was the language of the culture of that day. This is very significant because no matter who you are, what your economic background is, what nationality you are, what language you speak, you can clearly read the sign. Whether you're religious, a culture lover, or in power, you know what the sign says. And that's the gospel. The sign represents the identity of Christ and our identity in him. For we have been adopted into that kingdom. In what ways have you ignored that sign? In what ways have you rejected it? The two criminals, one on each side of Christ, both guilty and deserve to be there. Yet one curses Jesus and the other believes in him. The two paths of life. Even to the death, one curses the salvation while another lets it embrace him. And notice what the thief said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There's no sinner's prayer. He didn't ask for forgiveness for his sins. He didn't have time to turn his life around and do ten good things and become a member of a church. He didn't lower his head and close his eyes and raise his hand to be counted. There was no deal made like if you accept me, then I accept you. No. He simply acknowledged a fear in God and who Jesus was. He didn't accept anything like a gift. This is not the view of salvation that's so so predominantly preached. But even at this moment, Jesus could have rejected him, and yet he said, paradise awaits you. You can do nothing to get it or receive salvation other than believe. And you can't do anything without the work of the Holy Spirit. You don't wake up one morning and say, oh, today's the day I'm going to be a Christian. No. The Holy Spirit has to make a move in your life. But even as saints, we have to ask ourselves, in what ways have you cursed Jesus? John chapter 19, verse 23 When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. This robe is very noteworthy here. It was seamless, woven from top to bottom. So instead of tearing it, they gambled for it below his feet. It was four parts. There were four parts to Jesus' clothes. 
And this is quite possibly Jesus' finest possession, as it was for most Jewish men in the day. Because in the Jewish tradition, the mother sewed this type of robe and gave it as a gift for the son leaving home. And this robe was most likely given to Jesus when he turned 30 and left home to start his ministry. This means that this robe was with Jesus when he was tempted in the desert, when he was healing a bleeding, bleeding woman, when he raised people from the dead, when he cast out demons. The Bible uses clothes as character traits. Peter tells us to be clothed in humility. In Psalms, evil people are clothed in curses. Jesus' robe was seamless from top to bottom, pure, whole, sinless, and spotless. Now in the dirt being gambled for. Jesus' robe was taken from him and he was left naked the robe of righteousness now drapes your soul. His mother watching this, the robe she toiled over, her son she worried over before her eyes, both being trampled in the dirt. The robe symbolic of purity of a purity we will never know, and the nakedness, the symbol for humiliation and vulnerability, our nakedness in the garden and our nakedness in sin, both clothed, clothed by God himself, by sacrifice by God himself. Our nakedness and humiliation imputed to Christ and his robe of righteousness imputed to us. The whole purpose of the crucifixion was to wipe a person's memory from the earth, to X them out of history as though they never existed. It was meant to shame. So much so that it was actually illegal to crucify someone in Rome as well as a Roman citizen. We all know that. But disgrace and guilt and shame was its motive. And is that not how we feel when we sin? And it's the robe that covers that guilt and shame. The symbol of our vulnerability and infamy is traded for a symbol of seamless purity, a wholeness of Christ. What shame and guilt do you still carry? Wine and vinegar for a thirsty man dying on a cross. When Jesus arrived at Golgotha, he was offered wine and myrrh, and he turned it down. These things aren't bad tasting. But instead, he waited till he was hanging on the cross with his lips cracked, mouth like cotton, and his voice hoarse. He says, I'm thirsty. The one who made water gush out of rocks could have at least made himself not thirsty, but he didn't. The wine in scripture symbolizes grace. And that makes sense because at the Last Supper, it was wine compared to Christ's blood. For it is by grace we were saved through faith. The other side of that coin, the vinegar made with sour wine. And vinegar to the Hebrew people symbolized betrayal. So he rejected the wine and the myrrh. 
and at his most thirstiest moment, drank from the overflowing cup of betrayal. Why? To fulfill the prophecy so that grace would be shown. Psalms 41.9, betrayal of a friend. Psalms 31.11, the disciples fleeing and being ashamed. Psalms 35.11, false accusation. Isaiah 53.7, remaining silent before the judges. Isaiah 53.9, being proved innocent. Isaiah 53.12, included with sinners. Psalms 22.16, being crucified. Psalms 109.25, spectators mocking him. Psalms 22.7, being taunted and not being delivered from it. Psalms 22:18 gambling for his clothes. Isaiah 53:12 prayer for his enemies. Psalms 22:1 being forsaken by God. Psalms 31:5 yielding his spirit to his father's hands. Psalms 30 31:5 bones not being broken. Is Isaiah 53:9 burial in a rich man's tomb. It's the glory of God. It's the gospel on every single page. It's the powerful gospel in every single page of the Bible. How do you not see it? How can you not believe it? How can you not feel it? How can it not change you? Do you believe it? Has it changed you? How have you in your life betrayed Christ? John chapter 19, verse 34. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. The first sacrifice recorded in the Bible ended in murder. The last sacrifice recorded in the Gospels ended in murder. The spear making sure that he was dead and out poured water and blood now, water goes far back in scriptures, but we don't have very far to go back to the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4. Jesus says, that water I give will spring up from inside a person, giving eternal life. Water, not just throughout all of scripture, but the New Testament times, and even now, represents the Holy Spirit. In John chapter 7, Jesus says again that living waters will flow out from a person's heart. It is water and blood flowing from Jesus. The blood is the forgiveness and the water is the Holy Spirit poured out on us. And we need them both. And they both desperately come out from the same place. You can't have one without the other. The cross itself, so vivid in our minds, the symbol and the logo of saints. But it's kind of like, like wearing a miniature electric chair or a vial of sodium pentothal around your neck. Because the cross was meant to cut someone out of history, and yet it's our symbol of salvation. It's our hope in this life and in the next. And us on the ground looking up at the cross, us on the ground and God up above and Christ in the middle, from this life into the next, 
In Jesus' words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not the words of victory. Not the words of somebody who's just won something. But the words of a lost and abandoned child. Desperate and afraid. John chapter 19, verses 38 through 40. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he may take away the body from Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission so that he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. And so they took the body of Jesus, bound him in linen clothes with the spices as the burial custom of the Jews. Seventy-five pounds of myrrh. Also, one of the gifts that was given to Jesus by the Magi. We don't know how many pounds, but... But the amount is worth noting, is it not? Criminals didn't get this much if any at all. The only type of people who received this much myrrh for burial was royalty. Linen cloth wrapped his body. Why was that even mentioned? Because if he's going to come back to life, why wrap him up? Why put him in a tomb? Perhaps it was unbelief on their part. Could it have been confusion or a lack of understanding? Perhaps they just needed closure. In those days, though, when you went to somebody's house and stayed or ate and you enjoyed yourself, you actually left the bed linens in a crumpled up mess on the bed or their form of a napkin you would wad up and place where you sat. If you didn't like it, you would fold the clothes, you would fold the bed linens, you would fold the napkin. And so, these death linens folded at the foot of where Jesus was makes a huge statement. Triumph, victory, dwells, not in the tomb, but in you. Because Christ lives so shall you. Because Christ's body was raised from the dead, so will yours. Death has no power. The grave is vacant and Jesus lives. But, why the torment? Why the cross? Why the thorns? Why the spit? Why the nakedness? Why the beatings? All we needed was a cutthroat perfect blood to spill and we would receive forgiveness we needed far less so I go so far and beyond perhaps God wanted to show you how deep and how much and how far he's willing to go to save you his child to show his love and his grace and his glory for you. He gave us far more than what we needed and what we deserved.
He gave us himself. The answer to why is simply because you are loved far more than your feeble mind can ever imagine. You are the beast. The beauty came to save. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us of yourself. Beyond just a simple sacrifice, but through all of it, to extend your grace to us, to show us your glory, and to give us your love and forgiveness. Thank you.